Today I welcome Simon Lata Evans, Headmaster at St Paul's Cathedral School in London. In this episode, I discuss that big question, what are schools for? The step towards equalising education, the suitability of partnerships between private and state sector, and choosing the right dog. I can't believe that you're an avid cyclist, first and foremost. Well, I was until we got a dog. We haven't been on the bike since we got him in last November. Probably the most difficult dog you could ever wish to have as an Airedale Terrier. I don't even know. Is that the one with a bit of a square nose? Yeah, they're very beautiful, quite old-fashioned looking 1930s thing. Bigger than a Labrador. It's got jaws like the crocodile from Punch and Judy. Why that dog? Neither of us are really equipped to have dogs because of our jobs. I mean, it's a completely silly idea. But we've been talking about it a long time. And I'd always said, look, if we're going to have a dog, we're going to have a proper dog, not one of these sort of little things that... Toy dogs. Dio. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, welcome to the podcast. It's great having you on. We're going to kickstart. You've written that at its best, education is about changing the world to be a better place for all. But when private education costs are a barrier to so many families, how is that possible? It's really hard, isn't it? I think we have to start from another place. And this is not avoiding the question because we'll come back to that in, in a big idea in a moment. If we start thinking about teachers and teaching first, and I think what we've done over the last four decades is to erode teacher autonomy. And we've complete focus on instrumental outcomes and teachers are really restrained by that. There's always the argument that teachers need the tools, they need to know stuff. And of course, that's true. But what we're now in is a race for credentializing. And I think in doing that, what we've lost sight of is what else is happening to young people as we try to help them navigate the world. Part of that has happened because of insufficient funding in the broader curriculum, and that has been undermined. And so the purpose of schools have become distorted. I think alongside all of that is, and I know there's a recruitment issue with teaching, if we fail to make the profession rewarding enough in intrinsic terms and we fail to trust teachers, then we diminish the opportunities for everybody. And then you've got the question of the digital divide, which we saw really acutely during the lockdown. So there's lots of different things about trying to, it's not just about the barrier between private and state education. There are other things going on. It's, it's quite a complex map. And funding is one issue, having access to resources, because some of the best teaching comes out of the state sector, but it's in pockets. To me, it comes down to sort of appetite and people. People kind of drive change. Um, technology just becomes a lever and enabler to getting there. But with higher education, you know, we're already going to leave, obviously, generations of parents in debt and obviously the students. How are they going to afford a private education for their children too? This is the complete unknown. And I really don't know. I don't know how it plays out. We've really only had I don't know, when did fees for higher education come in? Uh, it was alongside the Labour Party's commitment to get 50% of people through university education. The early part of the 21st century, I think, we don't really know. I don't think there's any way of predicting what that long-term debt looks like. And it's also on a continuum from the stretched middle. There's been lots of conversation about what that is, right through to the 1% income earners. I'm not a social economist. Traditionally, people have found a way to pay for private education. But I don't think we can any longer really rely on the past as a barometer for the future. What can private schools do to make their offerings more available to more families? 
Well, there's the obvious matter of bursaries, and there really is a genuine will in the private sector to increase bursary support. In fact, only yesterday I had some parents come to see me, really exciting conversation that they'd instigated to help us to broaden our access. Beyond that, I think it's about sharing ideas and time with each other as much as resources, and that all has an impact and it works both ways. I mean, you'd mentioned great teaching in, in state schools. Teachers in independent schools have as much to learn from teachers in maintained schools as the other way around. And maintained schools are also finding it just as challenging as the independent schools to be fully inclusive. So we need to look at what those barriers are. Again, it's partly about putting pedagogy and curriculum on the front foot. On a practical level, what I'd really like to see happen increasingly is for schools to come together in local networks so that they can bring the children to work together and problem solve, to play together, create things, generate new ideas and so on. In practice, that's incredibly hard to achieve. And it requires a shift in the fundamental model, creating space in a crowded curriculum and a generosity of spirit and a willingness to take risks and getting parents on board. Curriculum change is quite hard in the state sector. Independent schools and the independent educators have much more control as to innovating things, trying new things in the curriculum. There has always been a long divide, a long standing divide between state and private education. Some would argue that our system is probably one of the most unequal in the world. What can we learn from other countries about closing this gap? Do you know, it's really funny. I was sitting with two parents this morning, one from um, Morocco, one from Sweden, asking them about their, what was their experience of education and how did that inform their decision-making about educating their children in the UK and they confirmed really for me what I'd always thought about what we can learn from other countries, that I'm not convinced that comparison directly is all that helpful. The PISA metrics are the big measurement stick between countries, but that's an extremely narrow measure. And I don't think it really tells us very much at all. I think we need to share ideas again, do lots of listening, have a look at what other people do. But different countries operate with different cultures, have different values and different contexts. So I think like for like comparison is not very helpful, actually. But go out there and look and see what's possible. I suppose the answer is to, to look at what a really coherent education landscape could possibly look like between state independence, national, international because that's surely where we're going to learn the most, because we are connected with everybody already around the world. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, where's the challenge there is that schools operate in their communities, essentially. And yes, you can learn a lot from looking at other countries. But I think if we want to look at a coherent landscape, then it comes back to a local geography, as well as being alert to what else is happening in the rest of the world. So. What I think would be really interesting to see is schools of all types combining within their communities to contribute to the whole. Part of that challenge in doing that across both maintained and independent schools is that we all rely on numbers of children on roll. We're all competing for talent and income, and that in itself is narrowing. So the model is inherently divisive. And I'm not arguing at all for a homogeneous education sector, because I think that could easily be a race to the bottom. A mix of school types has merit but then fund them properly and make the relationships between them fluid and porous. There certainly is a will to change. We've got initiatives like Schools Together, which is a start. 
And there's some really interesting ideas beginning to emerge. For example, some of the conversations we're having in the city of London of how we work together as a group of schools. But it's difficult because we're also set up to compete against each other within and across the sectors. This isn't music to your ears because it's your business, but schools now spend a lot of money and effort on marketing. You could argue that that's a lot of resource that could be used elsewhere. What saddens me is that very often schools, and we're the same, part of what you're doing is about institutional survival, whereas we should be putting the children first. And we all do it. We're all enthralled to market forces argument. And I think sometimes that fails children. It does if you if you focus on on marketing as the buzzword, but you know, as, as fee-paying schools, you know, you, you have almost like an obligation to bring in new families, to pay for teachers, to provide great teaching, and then and then the circle continues. I mean, for us, it's never really been about marketing, it's about standing out. And for us, it's about inspiring schools to share their story. You know, every school has an authentic voice. And I think you can hide behind marketing. Actually, what makes every school different is you, the place, the kids, the teachers, the things that you do, the community that you create and that you talk to and engage with. Unfortunately, schools don't see it that way. They think about marketing. That's almost been one of the problems with the independent sector is you all look and feel the same different uniform, different logo. You'll promise these great future skills. You promise a holistic education. You promise a pastoral breadth and this, this big cuddly hand, heart, head, whatever the phrases are. You all sound the same. But I know for reality that you're all different and you're different because of the things I just said. It's the people, the place, the purpose, the reason of being. And do you really kind of live into your values and your missions? I'd argue that schools don't. You hide behind the promise, but you don't know how to tell the story because you put it through a marketing person. And that's where we differentiate. You know, we talk about you know, marketing. That's absolutely a big difference because it shouldn't be that. How do we get your teachers to tell the story? Because you know that you can walk around school, there'd be a hundred amazing, normal things going on, but we've missed them. And so we're sort of bringing about transformation, getting schools telling their story through social and other ways. And then you have a way of curating it. And in being the musician that you are, you become, or the marketing person becomes the curator, the conductor, this incredible orchestra, whereby you've got your teachers who are your musicians playing their instruments, their subjects, and their, what they do. They're playing them out of tune. So imagine if we can get them playing in tune to start with, in terms of a simple story, and then you craft it and curate it to your different audiences. That's my reason I set this up. It's our reason for being. It's always been the narrative and the story, because that in itself is, is, is a showcase of your educational values not marketing. And actually, when, when we talk to schools, it's not marketing. Because you don't want to tell a teacher, by the way, it's marketing. Because <laughs> the teacher's going to go, I'm teaching the kids. You got me on my soapbox there. Sorry. <laughs> Quite right. I mean, all of those things are, are right. And we talk about, you know, schools do talk about values. And there's a great deal of work done now is making us much more aware of the importance of having, understanding what your value system is from which behaviours are spawned. What I'm talking about there specifically is that there is in the need to compete for talent, bums on seats, call it what you like, there is a resource cost somewhere in the system. I think there might be other ways if we work together collectively as schools and think about looking at your local landscape and what do we all bring to that, then that might be a different way of conceiving how we put children first. How do we move away from sort of mere partnerships? Because independent schools talk a lot about partnerships. It's new kind of how do we support the state sector, the maintained sector that, you know, that don't have all the luxury of all these facilities. How do we move away from, say, these mere partnerships between the sectors into a more rounded concept of education where we are putting the kids first? 
Well, I think that's exactly right. It is where you flip it upside down and look at your local community and say, what's in the best interest of all of these children? I mean, this is a completely idealised position that I'm staking out here. You can then consider what they need to have or have access to to flourish before going anywhere near them, thinking about them in terms of economic value, either short term for the institutions as units of income or the long view for what they might end up contributing to GDP. That's one of the problems that governments frequently have is that they look at education as a means for economic security for the country. That idea of education for a living rather than education for a life, and I think that's problematic. None of that's independent to you or unique to independent schools, but there's no incentive for maintained schools to recommend children to cross the divide either into independent schools because that's more money that they will lose because of the way the national funding formula works. Maintained schools' budgets are under close enough pressure as it is. So I think the fundamentals of the system, while by necessity about resource planning, they are by default oppositional, and that doesn't really help us. I don't have an answer, by the way, but I'm sort of prodding the conversation. I think we need to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it always sits to me like the future of education has to be the future of all education. You know, what, what are we doing? Not to give access to the privileged few, but how can we promote and and I think actually the last the last couple of years, because we've had to go online, we've seen pockets of of absolute inspiration where teachers can have a voice and they started to be able to share their way of teaching, getting other kids inspired because they had a, a technical platform to do it, not necessarily because the kids that were going to the regular maintained school didn't have the capabilities or the teachers to do it. So they were logging on and doing lots of these other things. And that was almost like a really good kind of petri dish for me to see how it could work. But people need people. And so you might get these super teachers who can inspire the millions, right? They become new influencers. You still need the facility to be able to tutor, right? You still need to be able to support kids in their different learning ways. But how I learn history is very different to someone else who wants to learn history from a different person presenting the same concept or the same curriculum, potentially, in a different way. But you've said that to really use education as a change agent, we have to find ways for young people of all walks of life to come together. While sport has naturally offered a platform for this for a long time, you've suggested it runs deeper than this. What else can young people connect? I think it's where you can put children together where they have a high degree of autonomy in the outcome of whatever it's they're doing. And there are examples of this happening in little pockets, and they might be arts projects, engineering, problem solving, creating city gardens, any problem or or community projects actually are brilliant for this, where children can come together. But then what you need to do is to adopt a socially collegiate model and bring people from different disciplines with different frames of mind different cultural reference points to look at solving those contemporary challenges. And then what would be fantastic is if those things are happening in the wider community, build space for that in the school day. That's the really tricky bit. But if we start then thinking about things from an anthropological perspective, we might see ways out of those sort of cultural and socioeconomic silos. What I mean by that is ask people from the ground up. So go and ask the children. Don't just construct models of education from the top down. I was reading recently in one of the news wires about an interesting state independent partnership that's just launched in Oxfordshire called OX14 Learning Partnership. I don't know it personally. I was reading about what they're doing. 
but part of their model includes the young people to define what it is that needs to be addressed and how they do it. That's really interesting. And I wish them luck with it. And I want to see how that program develops. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've all got to come up with new ideas and get the kids to lead a lot of these because they have, you know, technology at their fingertips. They know how to access information, getting them to help shape solution-based kind of ideas and education. It's actually what's being done a lot in America. And it's actually quite phenomenal when they, they're very service-led, where actually the kids will go out and actually take a whole term, a whole semester, if not sometimes a whole year, fixing a problem. So it'll be cross-curricular. They won't be like, we're just learning about the Tudors. It'll be, okay, we're going to pull up everything to do with fixing this problem in upper Manhattan or in middle America. And it's phenomenal because you get to see all disciplines and kids interacting to actually problem solve. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. You talk about sort of coming together and, and it's so important because, you know, we have to reflect what the world is in terms of its diversity, its inclusivity. At what age should this coming together begin? Is there an age too young or too late? I don't think so. I think you know, start as young as possible, start in nursery and with your immediate neighbours. Hopping back to some of the things you've just been saying, and you asked earlier about whether there's things we can learn from other countries, the examples you've been giving about what's happening in America are really interesting as approaches of ways of thinking about things. If you've got any of those examples, then I really would like to and if you can send some of those to me, that would be great to see. But no, as young as possible. Why not? When children are really little, they don't see any of those differences. They, that's a learned response that becomes about, you know, we become defensive as we get older, we become more afraid of the other. And that's a great shame. But if you start young, if I look in our playground here, the little children, they don't care where kids are come from. They want to play with them. It's just normal. You know, there is, there is no kind of questioning about the ethnicity, the diversity, anything about it. Kids are, are very open to everything. And you're right, it has to start as young as possible. You've written a lot about what schools are for, um, which is quite a philosophical consideration. Let's start with the obvious. What do you think schools are for? Leading on from what we were just just talking about a moment ago, children are really great at asking questions when they're young, and they've got a really clear sense of justice. As they grow older, they're trained through the system to answer questions. And through that, I think they become quite sometimes more defensive. I heard recently of a London school that tested six and seven-year-olds for an entry assessment, seated in rows in a silent hall with a bunch of written tests, and some of the children were crying. Well, of course they would. Now, and I think, well, surely we've moved on from that model. I worry about that when they're that young. So we move children from being thinkers to being vessels of stuff to know and possess. Nudged on this earlier on, of course, children need to know things. The more you know, the more complex are the connections that you can make. But I think it's a shame that our systems diminish that curiosity and a drive towards credentializing. Exams, for example, which absolutely have a place, ought to be outcomes, not goals. So to go to the heart of your question, what are schools for? It's an enormous question, occupies thousands of hours and millions of books. Broadly speaking, I think it's two things. Start from where we really are rather than an imagined behind the veil position, although that is a really useful and interesting exercise. And equip children to deal with the world as it is. 
then dangerously encourage them to take aim at it, to question it, to form a view about what's possible and to change it for the better on their terms. And that means educating for the whole person about developing knowledge and understanding and a frame of mind that's critical in the best sense of what's presented to us. In our small school, that's, I think, the best thing that we can try and do, bearing in mind that a school is only a fraction of the sphere of influence of a child's life. All the other stuff, like big social change projects, schools on their own, I can't do that all by myself. I need help. You know, we need community. We need parents to get behind those ideas as well. Yeah, and I suppose it's about igniting that spark that's going to hold a passion for life. And it does start at school. And, you know, I, th- I think about school and what I want my kids to come out as young adults. And it's happy, confident and curious. I think everything else, you know, if, if they're happy, then they just feel content with what they need to do. If they're confident, not arrogant, confident, they, they believe they can do most things. You know, nothing's going to knock me down. And the curiosity to never stop wanting to discover and learn. And the learning comes in all forms. And I was, you know, I look back at my own time at school and I'm probably more curious now than I ever was. And actually the older I've got, the more curious I have become. And I think it's because it's getting out the shackles of a state education that was very linear. It had had no choice. I was like this, creative, but no, you have to stay in this track. And that's something we've we've tried to avoid with with certainly our, our four kids. I've got kids at different schools are schools living up to this purpose yeah i think they are i mean i'm much more optimistic than i might sound you know i want to prod and provoke you know going back to the earlier questions i mean there is a massive divide here especially but generally around the world particularly between the rich and the poor and that's impoverishing all of us in the end but what happens in schools schools of all kinds do amazing jobs and the teachers in them are on the whole deeply committed with a genuine vocational drive to help children to thrive and flourish as people in their own right and contributors to civic society. Because of the nature of schools, it's also really difficult sometimes to look outside of your own bubble. That's not easy. So some of it goes back to the need for proper funding. We need to put an end to, and this is a real bet noir for me, the competition between schools I find is just wearing and put an end to the amount of administration foisted onto institutions at every level, from colleges, teacher education, to primary schools, senior management, teachers in the classroom, is just ludicrous now. We've got to have a lighter touch in all of those governance and policy businesses that don't, uh, don't get me going. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think there's a risk of overcomplicating a purpose in schools? You know, are, are schools thinking too hard? about this, about what they could be to be relevant? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, schools are complicated. They're social hubs and communities of their own. And I think more than ever, and we've really seen that, that's become highlighted through COVID and lockdown. We are an extension of a child's family, whatever that looks like, whatever the family looks like. Schools help and support not just the children, but their families as well. And it's true across every area of society. And that's a big ask. Schools really struggle to adapt to those increasing demands. It's not that schools don't want to, but we operate on finite resources. Schools now have counsellors, support units of all kinds, layers of pastoral care. And we're increasingly in the business of helping anxious and often overwhelmed parents. And all of that happens on the edges of a school's core functions. It's all coming out of the same pot as the key activities of teaching and learning. So then that becomes stretched in the time allotted to it. 
there's huge emotional demands made on teachers and school management in carrying all of that. So we've got the burdens of the children and their parents because it matters that we do do that. It might not always look like it. People can be really fragile. School teachers are as well, even when we appear to be robust. So schools do loads for their communities in often hidden ways already, and they always have done. But it's become increasingly systematized. And that adds additional expectations on what schools are reasonably able to do. It's hard. It's getting harder. It is hard. I think with 24-7 technology, with all those things, I think parents have more finite time to parent and to find the time to take care because they themselves are bad role models for their children because they are addicted to their own technology. So I think it's a difficult time. I think it's a difficult time for I think the mental health, I think we're, we're, we're heading for a pretty wide crevasse in terms of where, you know, the legacy of what we've dealt with over the last couple of years. But I just think with the unknowns with social media and, and everything else and technology, the addiction side of it, we're getting to a point. But, you know, as long as I think educators stay true to nurturing young men and women to come out with great ideas, to be curious, we're off to a great start. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.